After a short delay, I went at once to Mrs. Pittisell's place of residence, about an hour's ride from the center of the city, hoping to be in time to tell them of the matter myself. Upon reaching the house, however, I found all in a state of commotion. The neighbors were there, a physician had been summoned, and it was some time before I could obtain a suitable opportunity to talk with Mrs. Pittisell. I found her in a very nervous and overwrought condition, and I thought it best to palliate her fears for a time, and therefore said to her, Perhaps Ben is not dead. There may be a mistake in the person, as I saw him alive last week. To which she answered, Oh, no, I am sure it is he, for I have been writing to him under that name and at that address. Just at this moment, Desi, the oldest daughter, called me to one side and said, Do you think Papa is really dead? I replied that I feared so, but that her mother should not be told until we were certain of it. She said, I don't think he is. Last spring, when I was sick and he was leaving me, he told me that if I ever heard that he was dead, not to believe it, as some work he was going to do might require him to have people think so for a time. I asked her if he had told her mother of this, and she said, No, her father had told her not to tell anyone. As soon as a favorable opportunity occurred, I said to Mrs. Pittisell, Did Ben ever say anything to you about not worrying if you had heard of his death? She replied, Yes. And, after stopping a moment, added, If he has gone and done that without letting us know, leaving us to worry ourselves to death, I could almost wish he was dead. Is this the insurance matter? I guess it is, I replied, in such a tone that she would think that I knew it to be so. She then asked if he would get the money all right, and I told her that it would be paid to her, if anyone. She asked, Where is Ben now? I replied that it was his plan to go south at once. She said, Well, I do not want him writing to me. All his letters for me must go to you, and the children need not know but that he is really dead, for they would certainly tell of it. They are young and will soon get over the worry. I asked if the insurance policy was there in the house, and she said, I do not know. I will see. He ought to have given it to you if he was going through with it so soon. It may be in Chicago among some things stored in a warehouse there. I did not allow her to look for it at that time, as she was too ill yet from her shock to do so, but instructed her to look for it next morning, and, if well enough, to bring all the papers she had to my attorney's office. Some question then arose as to whether she could find this office, and she remembered that at the time of my arrest her husband had called there and brought home one of their cards, which she said was still among some of his papers, and with this she could find her way. At about nine o'clock, the family being more quiet at the time, I returned to the hotel for the night, and I feel sure that Mrs. Pittisell, at the time of this visit, which was the first confidential talk I had ever had with her, had no previous knowledge of an intention to perpetuate a fraud upon this company, other than a vague idea that under certain conditions and at a more remote time it might have been carried out.
which was the exact condition of affairs as they had existed upon the day of Pitisil's death. She is not a woman of extraordinary gifts, and any simulation on her part at this time would not have deceived me. The next morning I went to Judge Harvey's office and found that owing to his absence my case had been postponed. I left word there for Mrs. Pittisill, if she called during the day, to wait for me, and I went to the offices of another attorney and spoke of the insurance claim and told him if it was promptly paid I could use some of that money. He said insurance companies are slow and it will probably be some time before it is settled. He asked how large an amount it was, and upon my stating it was $10,000, he said, You will need an attorney in fixing the papers. Can't I do it for you? I replied that I was about to consult Judge Harvey. He said, Let me have it. I have just settled a fire insurance loss and had a first-rate success. Besides, you were really my client, as we sent you to Judge Harvey because my partner was away at the time. After returning to Judge Harvey's office and not finding him there, I saw him again and told him that the claim was a false one, that the man was, in reality, not dead. He made a number of inquiries as to the details of the fraud and finally said, Well, if you have anyone to attend to it here, it had better be me, for neither Judge Harvey or my partner would dare to take hold of it. I do not belong to this firm, although I have an office here with them. You will notice my letterheads appear with my own name alone. Still, I can avail myself of their judgment in important cases, and on account of this supposed death occurring under a fictitious name, you will find you need help. I then explained that Mrs. Pittisell was to come into the city that morning, if she was able, with the papers, and he remarked, Well, she must not know that I have any knowledge that the claim is not a legitimate one. It was then arranged that he should write some letters to the company's office in Chicago to ascertain if Pittisill had, in reality, paid the premium as he had stated, there being no receipts showing this had been done, and also to write the authorities in Philadelphia. I asked him in regard to his fee, and he stated that it would depend upon how much work had to be done, but that being a young attorney he would make it a reasonable sum. Later, in going out of the building, I met Mrs. Pittisell and explained to her that this lawyer would take care of the case for her, and that she should not have him know that she was aware of his knowing the true state of the case. In other words, she, while in his presence, was to appear and speak as though it were a genuine loss. So, at this stage of the case, I knew Pittisell was dead. Mrs. Pittisell and the attorney each supposed him to be alive, but, by a separate agreement, each had voluntarily made with me, both were to deceive each other in this respect, making a most unique case of conspiracy, if conspiracy it was. I was not present during all of the attorney's first interview with Mrs. Pittisell, but she authorized him to write the necessary letters, and I told her that he made satisfactory arrangements with me in regard to his fee, which I would be responsible to him for. I then gave Mrs. Pittisill some money for her immediate wants and left the city, intending to return again in ten days, at which time my case was to be called in court. Before going away, I told the attorney he could address me at Indianapolis at any time. 
About five days thereafter, I received a letter from him, stating that he had received an answer to his letter of inquiry sent to the Philadelphia authorities, in which they stated that the man referred to was only known to them under the name of Perry, and would be buried as that person unless someone identified him at once as Pitizel. He also stated that Mrs. Pitizel instructed him to ask me to return to St. Louis and aid her if I could do so. I did this at once, and upon meeting him, he told me it would be necessary for someone to go to Philadelphia at once, and wished me to furnish the money for him and one of the family to make the trip. I told him that the first of the following month I could not well do this, but suggested a person with whom Pitisol had formerly dealt that I thought would advance the necessary sum, if it was agreed that it should be returned to him with interest as soon as the insurance was collected. The attorney later negotiated such a loan, receiving $300. At this time, I saw Mrs. Pitisel, and she not being strong enough to take the trip, it was decided that the daughter, Alice, should go. This choice of the children being principally due to arrangements previously made by Pitisel, that if Mrs. Williams came to this country and returned to her old occupation as a teacher, that Alice should live with her for a year to go to school. I had received a letter from Miss Williams that she had decided to do this, and at the time of Pitizel's death had asked her to come to settle in Cincinnati, thinking thus she would break away from her old life, making it safer for me to be also where she could help in regard to some Texas papers, which I had found must at any hazard be duplicated. Therefore, a few days later, when Alice left St. Louis, it was with the full understanding that she was to stay east with Miss Williams, or to go with her to Cincinnati, if all located there. At the time I was about to leave, having made these arrangements, I received a letter that had been forwarded to me from Chicago, asking for my assistance in identifying Pitizel, it being known to the Chicago office that he had been in my employ. To intelligently answer this letter, I went to the attorney's office, at which time I first closely examined the insurance policy. I then wrote to the company as accurate a description as I could give of him. At this time, the attorney said, Why don't you go to Philadelphia also? I replied that it would be an unnecessary expense, and I wished to go to Cincinnati at that time to arrange for a house for the family. He said, I had better wait until the money was paid and I replied that the family would have to go to a house whether the money was paid or not. Finally, it was decided I should go to Philadelphia via Cincinnati, which I did, writing to the company from the latter place that I had business calling me toward Philadelphia, and I would call upon them in a few days, and if possible, aid them in identifying the body. Later in the same day, I met Alice and Root, the next day, early in the afternoon, I called upon the insurance company in Philadelphia. I was introduced, after a little delay, to Colonel Bosby Shell, one of the officers. He talked with me for some time regarding the case, and finally, having asked me a good many questions as to Pitizel's general appearance, said, Well, I think that it is either a case of mistaken identity or a fraud. The man found here, and who has been buried under the name of B. F. Perry, 
was a man who weighed forty pounds more than Mr. Pittisle, both according to your judgment and according to his application for insurance. And moreover, this man had red hair while Pittisle's was black. An attorney and some of Mr. Pittisle's relations are expected here at any time, and I wish you could stay and aid us in clearing up the matter. He then left the office, and in a few minutes returned with some money, which he tendered me, saying they would be glad to have me stay at their expense. I replied that I would not take the money, but having other work to attend to, I would call from day to day, and if I was to put too much expense or loss of time, I would ask them to pay me, otherwise no charge would be made, explaining further that Pittisel was indebted to me, and if the claim was a genuine one, I would be willing to devote some time to it in order that I could collect my money, which I had no doubt his wife would pay. That afternoon I saw our attorney, he and Alice having arrived in the interim. I told him of my interview, and he at once said, We shan't collect a dollar. They have either substituted a body for the one you used, or your choice was so poor that it had not deceived them. He was in favor of abandoning the case and returning to St. Louis. Finally it was decided that he should see the company the next day but he insisted, as he said, for his own safety, that if we met at the company's office, he should not have it appear he had ever seen me before. The next day, about half an hour after I called at the insurance office, the president of the company, who I had met the day before, and our attorney entered the room where I was seated, and the following conversation took place. Mr. Blank, the president, then introduced me to our attorney, saying, This is Mr. Holmes of Chicago, who carries insurance in our company, and who formerly was well acquainted with Mr. Pittisel. Upon our shaking hands, he said, I am glad to know you, sir. After some general conversation, I said, The officers of the company inform me that you have certain letters and other papers in Mr. Pittisel's handwriting, and I think, if agreeable to you, I can identify them if belonging to him. Our attorney then turned to the president, saying, Who is this man? Before I show any papers or have anything more to do with one who is apparently an outsider, I wish to know more about him. The president then said in a conciliatory manner, Oh, I think you can depend upon Mr. Holmes acting independently and for the interest of all in the case. He is a man formerly in business in Chicago, and for whom Mr. Pittisel worked for a long time, and if anyone is able to give an accurate description of him, Mr. Holmes should be able to do so. My inquiry was a precautionary one, said our attorney. I am willing under those circumstances that Mr. Holmes should examine the papers and aid us if he can. During that afternoon, our attorney entered into an agreement in writing with the company, stipulating that in order to establish his claim, certain marks of identification should be found upon the body, which it had been arranged to have disinterred the next day. Among those marks should appear a large wart, or mole, upon the back of the neck, jet black hair, a cowlick upon the forehead, a peculiarly decayed condition of the teeth, 
a bruised thumbnail, and a scar upon one of the lower extremities. That evening, quite late, our attorney came to me freshly terrified, and again ready to abandon the case. He had met a man named Smith, who, in conversation with him, had stated that while in Pittisel's place of business he had seen a man come in and hold some conversation with him, who he had understood was a friend then living in the city. Smith had stated that the friend had not come forward at the time of his death, and he thought it strange, and also remarked that if he ever saw the man again, he would know him. Mr. Smith was to be at the coroner's office next day, and was also to be present at the time the body was viewed. I told him that from what I remembered of the man, Smith, I did not think he was a very close observer, or overburdened with general intelligence, and I would take the chances of his recognizing me, rather than give up the case at that stage of it. Next morning we all met at the coroner's office. My judgment had been correct in regard to Smith. He noticed me only as he would have done any stranger, and upon being introduced to him, and being in his company, and holding a general conversation with him, I met with the same result. It was decided at the meeting at the coroner's office that later in the day those interested should go to the cemetery where the body would be exhumed for identification. This was done, there being in the party the president and two others, representing the insurance company, a physician, and a deputy coroner representing the city, our attorney, Alice Pittisel, and myself, besides Mr. Smith before referred to. Upon reaching the cemetery, we were told that the body had already been placed in a small house and was ready to be seen. I felt that there being two other physicians present, it was not necessary for me to take part in the identification, unless called upon to do so, and had, upon first arriving together with Mr. Perry, taken the daughter to a distant quarter of the enclosure. The physician made the examination of the body, which lay in a well-lighted room, and after taking abundant time for this purpose, came out of the building and announced that all marks of identification were wanting. After some further conversation, the President said to our attorney that they were satisfied before they came there that such would be the case, and a general movement was made preparatory to leaving the place. The attorney asked me what I thought should be done, and upon my answering him, he told the President that he would like to have me examine the body as well. I asked the doctor if he would object, and he said no, but that I would not find it a pleasant task. I entered the building and hardly had passed the door before I was positive that the doctor had been mistaken in the color of the hair. Upon a close examination, all the marks were easily found, the wart upon the neck, equal in diameter to that of a lead pencil, and projecting fully a quarter of an inch from the surface. The cowlick, the bruised nail, the teeth decayed exactly as had been described, and lastly, the scar an inch and a half in length upon the foot. I could do no less than call the doctor in, and one by one he grudgingly admitted their presence and that there should be no further question as to the identity of the man. I asked him to remove the wart for microscopical examination, some of the hair, the nail, and the scar. He said he had no implement with him, 
that he cared to use for this purpose. I had only a very small lancet, but I removed the necessary portions and later turned them over to the coroner's representative. I then endeavored to have a decision reached at once in order to save the necessity of the daughter seeing the body, feeling it to be cruel to have her to do so, and if possible to prevent it. The president would not agree to this, but it was finally arranged that she should see only the teeth. All other portions of the body were therefore excluded from view, and I led the child into the building. It was a terribly hard thing that I had to do, for she was but a delicate child of perhaps fourteen or fifteen years, yet she was courageous and very willing to do what she could. Upon reaching the body, she said, Yes, those are Papa's teeth, I am sure of it. I at once led her away, but I found the impression left upon her tender mind would remain as long as she lived, and have always felt it to have been a wholly unnecessary requirement upon the part of the company. Without regard to what the reasons were, the doctor's report was destined to cost me dearly, as will later be seen in this history. This ended the examination at the graveyard, and we all returned to the city. Even at that time the officers of the company would not express themselves as willing to allow the claim, but later in the day they reluctantly admitted that they were satisfied with the identification. Upon reaching the coroner's office again, the coroner very kindly offered to take my testimony the next morning, which was Sunday, in order that I could leave the city without further loss of time. After making this arrangement, I went to the insurance company's office, where I was reweighed, remeasured, and in other ways readjusted my own insurance, and later went to an undertaker's office and made every arrangement to have the body properly buried in a good locality, well satisfied to be able to perform this final act for my friend. The next day, at 4 p.m., having previously gone to the coroner's office, I left Philadelphia, taking Alice Pittizel with me. I had not heard from Miss Williams, as I felt sure I should do, informing me of her expected arrival in New York, and thus not hearing, I addressed her there, asking both she and Hatch to come to Cincinnati as soon as they conveniently could, stating my reasons for asking them to do so. Alice did not like to return to St. Louis on account of having told everyone she knew before leaving that she was going away for the winter, although she would have been very glad to have seen her mother. And upon reaching Indianapolis, I told her she could choose between returning to St. Louis or remaining there for the few intervening days while I went to St. Louis and returned with some of the rest of the family upon our way to Cincinnati. It having previously been arranged with Mrs. Pittisle, that this move should be made at once to save commencing another month in St. Louis, where she was paying rent. Alice having decided to remain in Indianapolis, I took her to Steuben's hotel and left her there in charge of those whom I had become acquainted with during my previous stay in that city. The next day I received a telegram from the attorney stating that the company had paid him the insurance, after deducting several hundred dollars for expenses, which, I think, was wholly unjust towards Mrs. Pittisel, the whole amount, if any, being due her. I then returned to St. Louis, where, owing to my absence, 
my own case had again been postponed, and I therefore decided to return to Cincinnati. Taking the two children, Nellie and Howard, I started for that city via Indianapolis, telegraphing to the hotel to have someone accompany Alice to the train in the morning to join us. This was done, and at about 8 a.m., we reached the Cincinnati station where Hatch met us. It was the first I had seen of him since early in December of the previous year. Taking the two children, Nellie and Howard, I started for that city via Indianapolis, telegraphing to the hotel to have someone accompany Alice to the train in the morning to join us. This was done, and at about 8 a.m., we reached the Cincinnati station where Hatch met us. It was the first I had seen of him since early in December of the previous year. Miss Williams had remained in New York, being unwilling to go to Cincinnati where she had previously played, and therefore was known to some people. Being in haste to commence my work among the real estate men, I gave the children into Hatch's charge, and he took them to a small hotel near the station. But not liking the surroundings, I returned to the Hotel Bristol. I spent a very busy day, but was not successful in finding property to exchange for Chicago property, and at last I thought it safer to rent a house for a time, and then, by advertising my property, find something more suitable for the children's wants. I therefore hired a house, paying one month's rent and six months water tax. I also made arrangements for its being comfortably furnished. Miss Williams not having come, I looked around for some trustworthy person to care for the children until their mother could reach them. Mrs. Pittisle, having a desire to visit her parents before going elsewhere, did so. Not finding such a person as I wished, and not liking to leave the children without proper attention, I decided to take them with me to Indianapolis, where I expected to be engaged in some real estate work for the following two weeks. This I did, Hatch accompanying us, and then going to Chicago from whence he returned in a few days. We reached Indianapolis about October 1st. The children stayed one day at English's Hotel, and then I engaged permanent board for them at the Circle House, my wife and myself being at another hotel nearby, so that I could visit the children each day and know they were properly cared for. This form of life was new to the children, and they thoroughly enjoyed it, going about the city either by themselves, Hatches, or my own company. I shortly afterwards returned to St. Louis, and, upon entering the attorney's office, he said, Well, I am glad you have come. My partner has been wishing that you would return. I said, Why? He replied, Because he wants to get this matter settled up and get our fee out of it. You know how close work it was to get the company to believe the claim was straight, and something may occur to make them change their minds. But, I said, why has he to be considered even in that event? He replied, because, in a case as big as this, he will have to be considered. Besides, if it had not been for his letter of introduction to Superintendent Linden in Philadelphia, the money would not have been paid. I then told him that I had not yet seen Mrs. Pittisle, but we would arrange the settlement when I did so and I would have her come in and sign the necessary papers later. 
Well, said he, what do you think we should receive? I said, I have no idea. You must set your price, not I. He then said, well, usually in these insurance cases, the attorneys get 50% of the claim. I have asked three disinterested lawyers about it, and they say I ought to have that much, they not knowing it as a fraudulent claim, which makes it all the worse. My answer was, well, if it comes to taking $5,000, which, from your own statement to me, is more money than you ever before earned in your life, you will have the opportunity to keep the balance as well. After some further conversation, he offered to choose an attorney if I would choose one and leave the fee to their decision, and with this understanding, I went away to return the next morning. When I returned, he met me with the announcement that his partner would not agree to his proposition. I then said, I wish to see him if he is the principal. At that time, I had never been introduced to him. He left his office in a few minutes and returned and conducted me into his partner's private office. He was seated at his desk, apparently much too busy to leave his work for so small a matter as the settlement of a $5,000 fee. Finally, he turned upon me and, in an overbearing, bulldozing manner, said, what is all this trouble about? Don't you expect to pay your attorney after you have hired him? I was angry at his insolent manner, and at once told him that I would have no words with him. If they wished to receive $500 for their services, reminding him that it had not been for my presence in Philadelphia, they would not have collected the claim, as he had shown so very little tact in treating with the company so much so that they had been twice upon the point of ordering him from their offices. Then that amount could be deducted, but no more. He then said, I will allow no man to come into my office and dictate to me in regard to a fee after the work has been done for him, and as for $500, it is an insult to offer it. I then reminded him that I was not making it as an offer to him, one of the most prominent lawyers of St. Louis, but to his partner, a recent law graduate, to whom a $500 fee would be a large one, inasmuch as his expenses upon the trip had been elaborately provided for. He said, Well, we will take $3,000 for this work and nothing less. I replied, it cannot be paid. He said, then there is no further use for us to discuss the matter. Turning to his partner, he then said, go to the bank and get a New York draft for what you have left. I'm going to return the money. I said, very well, sir. Nothing could be more to my advantage than this, and upon Mrs. Pittisill receiving the money direct from the company, I shall tender you your fee of $500. He replied, You will never have a chance to do this. When the money is sent back, I shall at the same time write a letter to my old friend, Captain Linden of the Philadelphia Police Department, stating that since my return, we have found out that the claim is crooked and cannot handle such money 
and that we think of it our duty to aid him by placing him in an immediate possession of all the facts pertaining to the matter. Moreover, you were wanted in Fort Worth, Texas, and I shall at once cause your arrest before you can leave the city. I replied, You could only cause me trouble in regard to the insurance matter at the cost of your partner's disgrace. He said, It is not so. It would be the word of our firm, which is well known throughout the country, against your single statement, and you a man that has already been under arrest once and will be again inside of an hour. This so angered me that I said, You can send back the money, you can arrest me, but you cannot intimidate or browbeat me. I will spend ten years in the penitentiary before giving in to you now. Upon this, I left the office. Mrs. Pittisall was seated in the outer room, having come in in the meantime. I asked her to come at once to Judge Harvey's office, and upon her hesitating to do so, when he asked her to remain a moment, I told her to make no settlement that involved a greater reduction than $500 from the amount the company had paid. Upon doing this, I left the office and waited a long time for Mrs. Pittisall. And when she met me, she was in tears and said they would not let her leave the office until she allowed them to deduct $2,500 from the insurance money, and that she had also signed a long typewritten agreement of some kind. Then she had the remainder of the money, about $6,000 with her, the lawyers having previously paid some bills upon her giving them a written order to do so. Some days previous to this, I had made arrangements that the amount of money to be used at Fort Worth should be paid at a bank at St. Louis in exchange for a note her husband had executed while there. Mrs. Pittisall went to the bank and lifted this note, and of the balance gave me $225 for my expenses, as she supposed. As a matter of fact, the $5,000 thus paid upon the note came to me, I having months before had to satisfy the claim by the use of other property. That afternoon, some time later, I left St. Louis, intending to return to Cincinnati and complete the arrangements there for the home of the Pittisall family. Before leaving St. Louis, however, I arranged that Mrs. Pittisall and the two other children should go to Galva, Illinois, upon their intended visit to Mrs. Pittisall's mother, and also make private arrangements to be informed of any movements that should be made by the attorneys detrimental to my interests. Upon my returning to Indianapolis, I found that both the children were apparently enjoying themselves. Hatch had received a letter from Miss Williams, to whom he claimed he was married, asking that we both meet her in Detroit. This meeting was delayed, as I had some more real estate work to do in Indianapolis, which had been neglected, owing to the insurance work. While attending to this work, I received word that the attorneys were intending to make trouble for me, and almost at the same time word came from Chicago that some Fort Worth detectives were again there, and had heard of my being in Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. After consulting with Hatch, who was very much worried lest if I were arrested it would implicate him as being with me, and perhaps Miss Williams as well, we concluded that we should go away at once. 
Finally, I decided to abandon the Cincinnati house and have the Pitizel family locate elsewhere, as the attorneys knew of my former trips to that city. I therefore wrote Mrs. Pitizel at Galva, advising her to change her plans and go to Detroit. Up to this time, all that I had done for Mrs. Pitizel she had been aware of, but I did not now think it prudent that she should know of the probability of trouble arising from the insurance company. I preferred having her locate in some large city at that time and explain to her afterwards about her husband's death, as he had requested me to do so, and also of the necessity of remaining quiet until I could ascertain if any real danger existed. Quite early upon the morning of October 10th, I went to the children's hotel and found them eating their breakfast. I told them we were going away that day, and went with them to their rooms and instructed them to divide their belongings into three separate packages, they having previously been contained in a very old trunk, which was not in a condition to be taken further. There was left in this trunk some old clothing, among which was a suit of heavy clothes which had belonged to Pitizel. I then asked the children whether they would go with me to Chicago, and then to Detroit, or go with Hatch. Howard Pitizel chose to go with Hatch, while the girls desired to go to Chicago, hoping, while there, to have some time to visit some of their former acquaintances. Having some purchases to make before leaving, I therefore, after telling the girls at what time to meet me at the station, left the hotel, having instructed Howard not to leave until Hatch should come, in order that he could direct him to come to the station before my train left. I met Hatch and Howard later upon the street. This was the last time I ever saw the boy, Howard, at which time he was both well and contented. The first few days after his leaving home, he had been homesick. While I was in the barber shop at the station upon this same morning, I asked Hatch to go to the hotel and have the nearly empty trunk taken to the station and have it checked to any destination he might choose, there being nothing of value in it, and it not being desirable to have it left at the hotel. Upon reaching Chicago, I took the two girls to a hotel, as I had business in a distant part of the city. I stayed during the one night I remained there at a new hotel upon the west side of North Clark Street, less than a block north of the Lincoln Avenue car junction. Not deeming it prudent, owing to the late news I had heard in Indianapolis, to go to my attorney's office, I had both him and my agent meet me elsewhere, and arranging my work as quickly as possible, I left Chicago upon Friday, October 12th, going directly to Detroit taking the girls with me. During the latter part of this trip, my wife was upon the same train, she having left Indiana that morning in response to a request from me to do so. Anticipating this, I had made arrangements with Hatch before leaving Indianapolis to be at the Detroit station to take charge of the children. Upon our reaching Detroit, I at once took my wife to a hotel about one mile from the station and as I was leaving the train, I saw Hatch helping the girls from the car in which they had traveled. About a half hour later, Hatch met me at the Western Union Telegraph office in response to a note I had given to Alice for him. It was very late at night, and I returned with him to the hotel, where he had taken the girls, to see that they were all right, 
and while going there he told me that he had been delayed twenty-four hours at some junction between Indianapolis and Detroit, so that he had only reached Detroit that afternoon, and Miss Williams, not wishing by any accident to meet my wife, had gone to Buffalo to visit some theatrical friends, taking Howard with her. I did not think strange of this, for I knew Howard had known and liked Miss Williams the year before, when she was in my office in Chicago. The next day I engaged permanent board for myself and wife, and also for the children, in two separate portions of the city, as I expected to remain there for some time, and, enlisting Hatch's services, we proceeded to look for a house that, if possible, could be bought in exchange for Chicago property, and by doing so save money. If this could not be accomplished, then a house that should be rented for a few months, until such a trade could be made. A small house was found so favorably located, with school advantages for the children, that I thought it best to pay the small deposit required, five dollars, to hold it for a few days. On Sunday morning Mrs. Pittisle came to Detroit, and I did not think it wise to tell her positively that she was to settle there until I have heard again from both St. Louis and Chicago. During the interval I had her board at a hotel, nor did I think it wise to tell her the other children were in the city, until I knew that no further move was to be made, lest she not understanding the danger of arrest if such a danger I should still find existing. She would be unwilling to go elsewhere unless she supposed the children and her husband, or both, had already gone. I had brought with me a package of papers from Chicago, which I did not care to carry in my own trunks, and it was arranged to conceal them in the house lately rented in Detroit. I took them there in company with Hatch, and proceeded to place them above the ceiling of the upper story when he suggested that in case of fire they would be lost, and volunteered to prepare a place next day in the basement for their safekeeping. And this he did by first buying a new shovel, and then making a small excavation in the earth, not using this shovel, as it afterward appeared, but another found in the basement. Upon the morning of October 17th, I received startling intelligence from both St. Louis and Chicago, and upon holding a consultation, it was with reluctance that we decided to leave Detroit and go either to Canada or Europe, for I felt that any move, without regard to expenses, was better than to have Mrs. Pittisle arrested, and myself as well. This day was a very busy one. Before Mrs. Pittisle left St. Louis, I had bought a large trunk, which I loaned to her to carry part of her personal effects to her new house. When it was decided to make a move into other lands, I arranged with Hatch that, while I was busy about other matters, we should take the trunk to his room and repack it, and exclude a multitude of worthless articles, after having told Mrs. Pittisle that this was to be done. It also became necessary to go to a city called Gypsilanti upon that same day to get a package of valuable papers I had ordered forwarded to me there, and, being so busy about other matters, I requested Hatch to make the trip for me. He hesitated considerably about doing it, saying he must see to repacking this trunk. I told him that I could better take the time to do this than to go to Gypsilanti. 
he replied that I could not well take it to his room, as I was not known to the people of whom he rented. I told him I would arrange it otherwise, and he then started for Ypsilanti. At about one o'clock I found an express man, and accompanying him to a feed store nearby, bought a flour barrel with the address of a party in Hartford, Connecticut, upon one end of it. We then drove to Mrs. Pittisell's hotel and had the trunk taken to the depot. There, upon the platform, I took such worthless articles as Mrs. Pittisell had placed in a separate part of the trunk and put them in the barrel, and, leaving the trunk at the depot, had the expressman take the barrel to either the United States or American Express Company's office and ship it to Hartford, Connecticut. At about 2 p.m., I went to a livery stable on blank street and hiring a horse and buggy drove to the house that had been rented and took the two girls with me for a drive i entered the house and procured the papers i had previously left there i also left a note instructing hatch to the effect that if he came from ypsilanti with the other papers not to bury them i then drove to hatch's room and left a small note and this accounts for the note being later found in the house where I directed the authorities to search. Earlier in the same day, Hatch and I visited several large stores, and at one obtained a $500 and two $200 bills, which, together with other small bills, making in all $1,000, which sum he took to Miss Williams to pay upon which was due her on the Fort Worth transaction. Before leaving Detroit, Hatch brought to the depot the new shovel wrapped in a paper and wished to put it in the trunk. But upon my remarking that it seemed more useless than things I had just taken out to make more room, he said he had paid for it and did not care to throw it away. The next morning, my wife and I left Detroit for Toronto at 10 o'clock. Mrs. Bittesel and the two children started two hours later. The next morning, Hatch took the two girls, Alice and Nellie, to the train, and they made the journey to the same city alone 24 hours later, and over the same road I had come, while Hatch came to Toronto by the way of Buffalo, where he stopped to see Miss Williams. I reached Toronto early Thursday evening, October 18th, and went at once to the Walker House. After taking dinner, I went to the station and met Mrs. Pittisell taking her to a hotel nearby, and returned to the Walker house for the night. Next morning we breakfasted at about 8.30. I visited Mrs. Pittisell at her hotel about half an hour, and then with my wife visited several fur stores, purchasing a fur cape, and returned with her to the Walker house for the midday meal. Immediately thereafter, we went for a long country drive and did not return until about 6 p.m. I ate dinner and then, as upon the preceding evening, went to the station. This time I met the two girls, Alice and Nellie, with whom Hatch had started from Detroit that morning, as stated. Upon their arrival, I placed them in an omnibus running to the Albion Hotel in care of the runner for that house, and returning to the Walker house had hardly had time to prepare for the theater, which I attended that evening with my wife. The next morning, after eating a late breakfast, my first occupation upon this day was to go to the Hotel Albion and visit the children. 
I found them in their room, greatly interested in watching the immense open market across the street. I remained with them until almost, if not quite, 10 a.m. Then I went to the post office, making a few calls at some haberdashers on the way. I reached the post office not later than 10.30, when I met Hatch in accordance with the arrangement made before leaving Detroit. He had visited Miss Williams at Buffalo upon the trip to Toronto, and, in answer to my inquiry, stated that the boy Howard was well, and that he had wanted to come to Toronto with him, but he had thought it best for him to wait and accompany Miss Williams if she came. He then left me, as he stated, to find for himself a private room, agreeing to meet me at the same place at 2 p.m. Now, in the short time between 10.30 a.m. and 2 p.m., it appears from the testimony recently taken in Toronto at an inquest that a visit was made to a real estate agent, then in a distant part of the city. A call was made upon the owner of the house at Vincent Street of sufficient length to arrange for renting the property, and to enter into a detailed description of the family supposed to be the future tenants, and become well acquainted with the owner, then to take possession of the house, to call upon a neighbor and make their acquaintance as well, and presumably to eat a lunch at some restaurant, and buy a small amount of furniture for the house just hired. Add to this the almost certain probability that the lessee had visited other houses as well, it being hardly possible that he could have found a house at once so well adapted to the purpose as this seems to have been. And there is little time left for other work before 2 p.m. of the same day. My movements during these same hours were as follows. Leaving Hatch at the post office, I went to Mrs. Pittisall's hotel, fully one mile away, stopping upon my way at the telegraph office for fully 15 minutes, while a search was instituted in a different part of the building for undelivered telegrams. After making a short call at the hotel, I returned to the Walker house, went again to the first store where our purchase of the day previous had been made, one of two stores located very near each other about two blocks west of the post office and north of K Street. Here fully one half hour was taken upon the work done there, which included the purchase of two storm garments. We then went to King Street, made several calls at furnishing stores and one large dry goods store, and then, after spending some time in selecting a good pocket compass, returned to the Walker House for lunch, to do which, and to write two letters, certainly occupied fully an hour, probably more. I then went again to the Albion Hotel, stopping to buy the children some fruit and toys upon the way. At the appointed hour, I went to meet Hatch at the post office. He was late in keeping his appointment, and I made several purchases in that neighborhood, and I think at this time selected the material and was measured for a suit of clothes at a custom tailor shop upon the west side of Young Street, near junction of the street leading to the post office. Upon meeting Hatch, I told him I was to be absent from the city on Sunday, and asked if he could see to the children while I was away, and if they wished to go for a streetcar ride, he would accompany them. 
This he agreed to do, and after making some further plans with him for the following week, I went to the Hotel Albion again and told the children of the arrangement made for their ride, then went to the furnishing store on King Street, kept by a man named Dixon, I think. When I found the grade of goods I had been in search of, and after purchasing some, I returned to the Walker house with hardly time left to be shaved and go to Mrs. Pittisle's hotel, to let her know I was to be out of the city the next day, and to catch the 4 or 4.30 train for Niagara Falls. At this time, my wife's trunk and the large trunk from Detroit were both at the Toronto depot, and I asked that they be checked to Niagara. I remarked to the baggage agent that I had no need to take the large one, save to avoid storage. He asked how long I desired to leave it there, and I replied that was uncertain, but perhaps a week. He asked for half a dollar, and said that there are no further charges if it was taken away in a week's time. The trunk never left the Toronto depot during my stay there. Sunday, October 21st, was passed by us at the Falls, returning to Toronto by the way of Hamilton in the early evening, at which time I went to the Palmer House. During Monday I was busy about the city, returning to my hotel often during the day. Part of the time I was with Hatch, searching for a suitable location in which he and Miss Williams could open a respectable massage establishment, if they all settled there which was the real object of the Toronto trip, as I have reason to believe. During the day, he asked me if I would not spend Tuesday night with him in and about the city. I gave him to understand that I might do so. Tuesday morning we met, as had become our custom, at the post office between 10 and 11 o'clock. I received additional and disquieting messages from the West, and by noontime we had made up our minds that the conditions favorable to the business he had hoped to find did not exist in Toronto, and they had decided to go to England instead. Hatch particularly favored this plan, as they had had a prosperous business there during the foregoing year, and he at once wrote Miss Williams to that effect, and for her to meet the two girls at Niagara at as early a day as possible, which she was to appoint by letter. She was to take the three children to London, while Mrs. Pittisle took the others there a little later on, or as soon as we could become settled again. When Hatch again urged me to stay with him during the night, I finally told him that since my terrible experience of the year before, which the indirect results of my loose living had been Nanny Williams' death, and more particularly since my marriage, I had endeavored to live a clean life, and thought best not to deviate in this instance. I returned to the Palmer House not later than 4.30 p.m. Later, in thinking the matter over, I thought, inasmuch as he had helped me so much during the preceding weeks, it seemed like ill treatment towards him, and decided that if he brought the matter up next day, I would spend a part of the evening with him. Acting upon this decision, I told my wife next morning, Wednesday, that I might not return until late. But later in the day, I reconsidered my former plan and returned to the Palmer house at about 2.30 p.m., and my wife being absent and the room locked at the time, I threw some flowers I had just brought into the room through the open transom, my wife finding them upon her return a short time later.
During the day, I had been buying a quantity of small articles to send to my relatives in New Hampshire, and had gotten them together temporarily at the furnishing store previously mentioned. At noontime, I had eaten lunch with the children, and in the afternoon, Hatch had taken them for a drive. In the evening, I accompanied my wife to the theater, enjoying myself far more than the case would be had I been going about the city together with Hatch and a guilty conscience. On Thursday, October 24th, the day when it is reasonable to suppose the two girls were killed, I was busy about the city during the forenoon. The girls came to the post office at about 10.30 and either went with Hatch for a drive or a streetcar ride, they having been in Hatch's care more than with me while in Toronto. For the reason that their hotel was so distant, it encroached upon my time to ride to visit both them and Mrs. Pittisall, and do what work I wished. That morning we heard that Miss Williams would meet the girls at Niagara upon the arrival of the afternoon train. They ate lunch with me between one and two o'clock, Hatch being elsewhere at the time. The girls returned to their hotel afterwards for a few minutes to change part of their attire for some that was warmer, which I had bought for them in anticipation of their sea voyage. Later they joined me again, and I bought them a number of presents. I also bought Miss Williams a small brooch, which I gave to Alice, together with a note, which she was to deliver personally to Miss Williams. My object in sending it this way was that Hatch knew of our former relations, and I had avoided sending by him, as he then claimed she was his wife. About half an hour before train time, which I think was 4.30 p.m., we were upon Young Street. I sent the girls to a restaurant or bakery nearby to get some lunch prepared to take with them upon the train, instructing them to then come to a large store which I pointed out to them where I would await their arrival. I then entered this store and bought some small articles for the children, having in my hands at the time some underwear I had previously purchased to send to Howard, the boy, when I heard a familiar voice, and turning, saw Mrs. Pittisall and the other two children. I quote from her recent statement, made in Toronto, as to what took place between us then, and state that it could have only been on this day for while there I asked her if she could get ready to leave Toronto that evening. I am convinced that my two children were right here in Toronto while I was here, said Mrs. Pittisall. One day while I was shopping in a large store here, I suddenly saw Holmes. He said, you wait here a little while until I return. I believe my children were right there in that store at that time, and Holmes took them out some other way so I should not see them. As a matter of fact, they were at the bakery before spoken of, and I can only wish now that they had been with me and met their mother, though at the time I should have considered it an unfortunate circumstance, for the same reasons that obtained in Detroit. I at once left the store and took the children to the depot, where Hatch met me with some bundles of goods he had bought. I took the children to the ladies' waiting room, and giving Alice four hundred dollars, directed her to go into the private waiting room and fasten it securely within her dress, and later give it to Miss Williams. I also gave each of the girls a small amount of spending money. 
I wrote a telegram directing it to myself at the hotel opposite the Palmer House for Alice to send me early next morning from Niagara if anything happened to prevent Miss Williams meeting them as had been agreed upon. I also gave them explicit directions as to where to stay and told them that I would surely go to them at once if any trouble arose. I then asked if they were afraid to go alone. Alice answered, Oh, no, I wish you or Mr. Hatch were going along, though. The train came so quickly that I had little time to bid them good-bye, and therefore got upon the train and accompanied them perhaps a mile to a station where the train slowed up, Hatch going still farther, at his suggestion, to see that the conductor took their tickets and agreed to transfer them at Hamilton to the right train. I sat in the seat with Nellie during this time, Alice being in the seat in front. They spoke of their prospective voyage, gave me messages for their mother and the baby, and asked how long it would be before we all came to London. I told them to help Miss Williams all they could, and especially cautioned Nellie about quarreling with Howard, which she was apt to do when they were together, finally telling them that upon my arrival there, the three who had not quarreled would receive a present of considerable value. My opportunity to leave the train having now arrived, I hastily bade them good-bye, and started to leave the car. Little Nellie followed me to the door and said, Don't forget about baby, and reaching up kissed me good-bye, and ran back to the seat again. With all truthfulness, I most earnestly state that under the circumstances, and at this time, about 4.30 p.m. Thursday, October 25th, I last saw these children. End of section 9